0: Chapter Twenty Two of Dread A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Chapter Twenty Two The Worshipers. The camp meeting is one leading feature in the American development of religion, peculiarly suited to the wide extent of country and to the primitive habits which generally accompany a sparse population. Undoubtedly, its general effects have been salutary. Its evils have been only those incident to any large gatherings in which the whole population of a country are brought promiscuously together. As in many other large assemblies of worship, there are those who go for all sorts of reasons, some from curiosity, some from love of excitement, some to turn a penny in a small way of trade, some to scoff, and a few to pray. And so long as the heavenly way remains straight and narrow, so long the sincere and humble worshipers will ever be the minority in all assemblies. We can give no better idea of the difference of motive which impelled the various worshippers than by taking our readers from scene to scene on the morning when different attendants of the meeting were making preparations to start. Between the grounds of Mr. John Gordon and the plantation of Canemaw stood a log cabin. Which was the trading establishment of Abijah Skinflint. The establishment was a nuisance in the eyes of the neighbouring planters, from the general apprehension entertained that Abijah drove a brisk underhand trade with the negroes, and that the various articles which he disposed for sale were many of them surreptitiously conveyed to him in nightly installments from off their own plantations. But Of this nothing could be proved. Abijah was a shrewd fellow, long, dry, lean, leathery, with a sharp nose, sharp little gray eyes, a sharp chin, and fingers as long as birds' claws. His skin was so dry that one would have expected that his cheeks would crackle whenever he smiled or spoke, and he rolled in them a never-failing quid of tobacco. Abijah was one of those over-shrewd Yankees who leave their country for their country's good, who exhibit, wherever they settle, such a caricature of the thrifty virtue of their native land as to justify the aversion which the native-born southerner entertains for the Yankee. Abijah drank his own whiskey, prudently, however, or, as he said, never so as not to know what he was about. He had taken a wife from the daughters of the land, who also drank whiskey, but less prudently than her husband, so that sometimes she did not know what she was about. Sons and daughters were born into this promising couple, white-headed, forward, dirty, and ill-mannered, but amid all the domestic and social trials Abijah maintained a constant and steady devotion to the main chance the acquisition of money. For money he would do anything. For money he would have sold his wife, his children, even his own soul, if he had happened to have one. But that article, had it ever existed, was now so small and dry that one might have fancied it to rattle in his lean frame like a shriveled pea in last year's pea pod. Abijah was going to the camp meeting for two reasons. One, of course, was to make money, and the other was to know whether his favorite preacher, Elder Stringfellow, handled the doctrine of election according to his views. For Abijah had a turn for theology and could number off the five points of Calvinism on his five long fingers with unfailing accuracy. It is stated in the Scriptures that the devils believe and tremble the principal differences between their belief in abijah's was that he believed and did not tremble truths awful enough to have shaken the earth and veiled the sun he could finger over with as much unconcern as a practised anatomist the dry bones of a skeleton you sam said abijah to his only negro helot you mind you steady that air barrel so that it don't roll out and pour a pailful of water in at the bung. It won't do to give it to him too strong. Miss Skinflint, you make haste If you don't, I shan't wait for you, cause whatever the rest may do, it's important I should be on the ground early. Many a dollar lost for not being in time in this world. Hurry, woman. I am ready, but Polly ain't, said Mrs. Skinflint. She's busy a plastering down her hair can't wait for said abijah as he sallied out of the house to get into the wagon which stood before the door into which he had packed a copious supply of hams eggs dressed chickens corn meal and green summer vegetables to say nothing of the barrel of whiskey aforesaid i say dad you stop called polly from the window if you don't i'll make work for you for you come home you see if i don't Darn if I won't. Come along, Ben, can't you? Next time we go anywhere, I'll shut you up overnight to begin to dress." Polly hastily squeezed her fat form into a red calico dress and, seizing a gray summer shawl with her bonnet in her hand, rushed to the wagon and mounted, the hooks of her dress successively exploding and flying off as she stooped to get in. "'Darn if I knows what to do,' said she. This year, old dern gear coats all off my back. Gals is always fools," said Abijah consolingly. "Stick in a pin," Polly said her mother in an easy sing-song drawl. "Dern you, old woman! Every hook is off," said the promising young lady. "Stick in more pins," then said the mamma, and the vehicle of Abijah passed forward on the verge of the swamp a little beyond tiff's cabin lived ben dakin ben was a mighty hunter he had the best pack of dogs within thirty miles around and his advertisements still to be seen standing in the papers of his native state detailed with great accuracy the precise terms on which he would hunt down and capture any man woman or child escaping from the service and labor in that country Our readers must not necessarily suppose Ben to have been a monster for all this, when they recollect that within a few years both the great political parties of our union solemnly pledged themselves, as far as in them lay, to accept a similar vocation, and as many of them were in good and regular standing in churches, and had ministers to preach sermons to the same effect, we trust they'll entertain no unreasonable prejudice against Ben on this account. In fact, Ben was a tall, broad-shouldered, bluff, hearty looking fellow who would do a kind turn for a neighbor with as much good will as anybody, and except that he now and then took a little too much whiskey, as he himself admitted, he considered himself quite as promising a candidate for the kingdom as any of the company who were going up to camp-meeting. Had anyone ventured to remonstrate with Ben against the nature of his profession, he would probably have defended it by pretty much the same arguments by which modern theologians defend the institutions of which it is a branch. Ben was just one of those jovial fellows who never could bear to be left behind in anything that was going on in the community, and was always one of the foremost in a camp-meeting. He had a big, loud voice, and could roll out the chorus of hymns with astonishing effect. He was generally converted at every gathering of this kind, though through the melancholy proclivity to whiskey, before alluded to, he usually fell from grace before the year was out. Like many other big and hardy men he had a little, pale, withered, moonshiny wisp of a wife, who hung on his elbow much like an empty work-bag, and Ben, to do him justice, was kind to the wilted little mortal, as if he almost suspected that he had absorbed her vitality into his own exuberant growth. She was greatly given to eating clay, cleansing her teeth with snuff, and singing Methodist hymns, and had a very sincere concern for Ben's salvation. The little woman sat resignedly on the morning we speak of, while a long-limbed, broad-shouldered child of two years, with bristly white hair, was pulling her by her ears and hair, and otherwise maltreating her, to make her get up and give him a piece of bread and molasses. And she, without seeming to attend to the child, was giving earnest heed to her husband. "'There's a despot press of business now,' said Ben. There's James Niggers and Smith's Polly, and we ought to be on the trail right away, Oh, Ben, you ought to tend to your salvation for anything else, said his wife. That's true enough, said Ben. Meetings don't come every day, but what are we to do with dis yearin pointing to the door of an inner room? dis yearin was no other than a Negro woman named Nance who had been brought in by the dogs the day before. Laws said his wife, "'we can sit here, something to eat, and leave the dogs in front of the door. She can't get out.' Ben threw open the door, and displayed to view a low kind of hutch without any other light than that between the crevices of the logs. On the floor, which was hard-trodden earth, sat a sinewy, lean, negro woman, drawing up her knees with her long arms and resting her chin on them. "'Ho, Nance, how are you?' said Ben, rather cheerily. "'Poorly, Massa,' said the other, in a sullen tone. "'Nance, you think your old man will wail you when he gets you?' said Ben. "'I reckons he will,' said Nance. "'He allers does.' "'Well, Nance, the old woman and I want to go to a camp-meeting,' and I'll just tell you what it is. You stay here quiet while we are gone, and I'll make the old fellow promise not to wallop you. I wouldn't mind taking off something of the price. That's fair, ain't it? Yes, Massa, said the woman in the same subdued tone. Does your foot hurt you much, said Ben? Yes, Massa, said the woman. Let me take a look at it, said Ben. The woman put out one foot, which had been loosely bound up in old rags, now saturated with blood. I declare, if that air dog ain't a peeler," said Ben. "Nance, you ought to have stood still; he wouldn't have hurt you so." "Lord, he hurt me though I couldn't stand still," said the woman. "It ain't nature to stand still with a critter's teeth in your foot." "Well, I don't know as it is." said Ben good naturedly Here, Miss Dakin, you bind up this here gal's foot. Stop your noise, siree!" he added to the young aspirant for bread and molasses, who, having dispatched one piece, was clamoring vigorously for another. I'll tell you what, said Ben to his wife, I'm going to talk to that old elder settle. I runs more niggers for him than any man in the county, and I know there's some reason for it. Niggers don't run into swamps when they's treated well. Folks that professes religion, I think, oughtn't to starve their niggers no way. Soon the vehicle of Ben was also on the road. He gathered up the reins vigorously, threw back his head to get the full benefit of his lungs, and commenced a vehement camp-meeting melody to the tune of Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? A hymn by the by, which is one of Ben's particular favorites. We come next to Tiff's cottage, of which the inmates were astir, in the coolness of the morning bright and early. Tiff's wagon was a singular composite article, principally of his own construction. The body of it consisted of a long packing-box, the wheels were all odd ones that had been brought home at different times by Cripps. The shafts were hickory poles, thinned at one end, and fastened to the wagon by nails. Some barrel hoops bent over the top, covered by coarse white cotton cloth, formed the curtains, and a quantity of loose straw dispersed inside was the only seat. The lean, one-eyed horse was secured to this vehicle by a harness made of old ropes. But no millionaire, however ever enjoyed his luxuriantly cushioned coach with half the relish with which Tiff enjoyed his equipage. It was the work of his hands, the darling of his heart, the delight of his eyes. To be sure, like other mortal darlings, it was to be admitted that it had its weak points and failings. The wheels would now and then come off, the shafts get loose, or the harness break. But Tiff was always prepared, and on occasion of any such mishaps he would jump out and attend to them with such cheerful alacrity that, if anything, he rather seemed to love it better for the accident. There it stands now before the enclosure of the little cabin, and Tiff and Fanny and Teddy, with bustling assiduity, are packing and arranging it. The gum-tree cradle-trough, took precedence of all other articles. Tiff, by the private advice of Aunt Rose, had just added to this an improvement which placed it, in his view, tip-top among cradles. He had nailed to one end of it a long splint of elastic hickory, which drooped just over the baby's face. From this was suspended a morsel of salt pork which this young scion of a noble race sucked with a considerable relish, while his large round eyes opened and shut with sleepy satisfaction. This arrangement Rose had recommended, in mysterious tones, as all-powerful in making sucking babies forget their mammies, whom otherwise they might pine for in a manner prejudicial to their health. Although the day was sultry, Tiff was arrayed in his long-skirted white greatcoat, as his nether garments were in too dilapidated a state to consist with the honor of the family. His white felt-hat still bore the band of black crepe. "'It's mazin good day! Bless the Lord!' said Tiff. "'Peers like these ear-birds would split their throats, praisin' the Lord!' IT'S A MIGHTY GOOD SAMPLE TO US ANYWAY. YOU SEE, MISS FANNY, YOU NEVER SEE BIRDS PUT OUT, NOR SNARLY-LIKE, RAIN OR SHINE. THEY'S ALLERS A-PRAISING THE LORD. LORD, IT SEEMS AS IF critters IS BETTER than WE BE." AND AS TIFF SPOKE, HE SHOULDERED INTO THE WAGON A MIGHTY BAG OF CORN. BUT FAILING IN WHAT HE MEANT TO DO, THIS BAG SLID OVER THE SIDE and tumbled back into the road. Being somewhat of the oldest, the fall burst it asunder, and the corn rolled into the sand with that provoking alacrity which things always have when they go the wrong way. Fanny and Teddy both uttered an exclamation of lamentation, but Tiff held on to his sides and laughed till the tears rolled down his cheeks. He hey. Ho, ho, ho Why dat Larry is the last bag we's got, and there's all de the a runnin out in the sand, oh ho ho, Lord, It's so curious Why, what are we going to do? said Fanny, Oh, brace you, Miss Fanny said Tiff, as bound to do something anyhow, clear for it now, if I han't got a box, and Tiff soon returned with the article in question, which proved too large for the wagon. The corn, however, was emptied into it pro tem, and Tiff, producing his darning needle and thimble, sat down seriously to the task of stitching up the hole. "'The Lord's things ain't never in a hurry,' said Tiff. "'Corn and tatles will have their time, and why shouldn't I?' "Dare," he said, after having mended the bag and replaced the corn, "'that air is better now, nor it was before.' Besides his own store of provisions, Tiff prudently laid into his wagon enough of garden stuff to turn a penny for Miss Fanny and the children on the campground. His commissariat department, in fact, might have provoked appetite even among the fastidious. There were dressed chickens and rabbits, the coon aforesaid, bundles of savory herbs, crisp dewy lettuce bunches of onions, radishes, and green peas. "'Tell ye what, children,' said Tiff, "'we'll live like princes, and you mind, order me round well. Let folks hear you, cause what's the use of having a nigger, and nobody knowing it?' And everything being arranged, Tiff got in, and jogged occasionally along. At the turn of the crossroads, Tiff, looking a little behind, saw on the other road the Gordon carriage coming, driven by Old Hundred, arrayed in his very best ruffled shirt, white gloves, and gold hat-band. If ever Tiff came near having a pang in his heart, it was at that moment. But he retreated stoutly upon the idea that, however appearances might be against them, his family was no less ancient and honorable for that, and therefore Putting on all his dignity, he gave his beast an extra cut, as who should say, I don't care. But as ill luck would have it, the horse, at this instant giving a jerk, wrenched out the nails that fastened the shaft to one side, and it fell trailing dishonored on the ground. The rope harness pulled all awry, and just at this moment the Gordon carriage swept up. FOR I DRIVE SUCH AN OLD TRASH, SAID OLD HUNDRED scornfully. PULLS ALL to PIECES EVERY STEP. IF THAT THERE AIN'T POOR WHITE FOLKS ESTABLISHMENT, I NEVER SEED ONE." What's the matter? said NINA, PUTTING HER HEAD OUT. Oh, Tiff, good morning, my good fellow. Can we help you there? John get down and help him. Please, Miss NINA, the horses are so full of tickle this year morning. "'I couldn't let go no ways,' said Old Hundred. "'Oh, laws bless you, Miss Nina,' said Tiff, restored to his usual spirits. "'Tain't nothing. Broke in a extraordinary good place this year time. I can hammer it up in a minute.' And Tiff was as good as his word, for a round stone and big nail made it all straight. "'Praise,' said Nina, "'how are little Miss Fanny and the children?' (gasps) miss fanny if nina had heaped tiff with presents she could not have conferred the inexpressible obligation conveyed in these words he bowed low to the ground with the weight of satisfaction and answered that Miss fanny and the charon were well there said nina john you may drive on Do you know, friends, I've set Tiff up for six weeks by one word, just saying Miss Fanny has done more for him than if I had sent him six bushels of potatoes. We have yet to take our readers to one more scene before we finish the review of those who were going to the camp meeting. The reader must follow us far beyond the abodes of man into the recesses of that wild desolation known as the Dismal Swamp. We passed over vast tracts where the forest seems growing out of the water. Cypress, red cedar, sweet gum, tulip, poplar, beech, and holly form a goodly fellowship waving their rustling boughs above. The trees shoot up in vast columns, fifty, seventy-five, and a hundred feet in height, and below are clusters of evergreen gall bushes with their thick and glossy foliage mingled in with swamp honeysuckles and grapevines, twining briar and laurels, and other shrubs, forming an impenetrable thicket. The creeping plants sometimes climb seventy or eighty feet up the largest tree, and hang in heavy festoons from their branches. It would seem impossible that human feet could penetrate the wild impervious jungle, but we must take our readers through it to a cleared spot where trunks of fallen trees long decayed have formed an island of vegetable mould which the art of some human hand has extended and improved the clearing is some sixty yards long by thirty broad and is surrounded with a natural rampart which might well bid defiance to man or beast. huge trees have been felled with all their branches lying thickly one over the other, in a circuit around, and nature, seconding the efforts of the fugitives who sought refuge here, has interlaced the framework thus made with thorny catbriers, cables of grapevine, and thickets of Virginia creeper, which, running wild in their exuberance, climb on to the neighbouring trees and, swinging down again, lose themselves in the mazes from which they spring. So as often to form a verdurous wall fifty feet in height. In some places the laurel, with its glossy green leaves and its masses of pink-tipped snowy blossoms, presents to the eye rank above rank a wilderness of beauty. The pendants of the yellow jasmine swing to and fro in the air like censers, casting forth clouds of perfume. A thousand twining vines, with flowers of untold name, perhaps unknown as yet to the botanist, help to fill up the mosaic. The leafy ramparts sweep round on all the sides of the clearing, for the utmost care has been taken to make it impenetrable, and, in that region of heat and moisture, nature, in the course of a few weeks, admirably seconds every human effort the only egress from it, is a winding path cut through with a hatchet, which can be entered by only one person at a time, and the water which surrounds this island entirely cuts off the trail from the scent of dogs. It is to be remarked that the climate in the interior of the swamp is far from being unhealthy. Lumbermen, who spend great portions of the year in it, cutting shingles and staves, testify to the general salubrity of the air and water. The opinion prevails among them that the quantity of pine and other resinous trees that grow there impart a balsamic property to the water and impregnate the air with a healthy resinous fragrance, which causes it to be an exception to the usual rule of the unhealthiness of swampy land. The soil also when drained sufficiently for purposes of culture, is profusely fertile. Two small cabins stood around the border of the clearing, but the center was occupied with patches of corn and sweet potatoes, planted there to secure as much as possible the advantage of sun and air. At the time we take our readers there, the afternoon sun of a sultry June day is casting as long shadows over the place, and a whole choir of birds is echoing in the branches. On the ground, in front of one of the little cabins, lies a negro man, covered with blood. Two women with some little children are grouped beside him, and a wild figure, whom we at once recognize as dread, is kneeling by him, busy in efforts to staunch a desperate wound in the neck. In vain, the red blood spurts out at every pulsation of the heart, with a fearful regularity, telling too plainly that it is a great life-artery which has been laid open. The negro woman, kneeling at the other side, is anxiously holding some bandages, which she has stripped from a portion of her raiment. Oh, put these on, quick, do! It's no use, said Dred. He is going. Oh, no, don't! Don't let him go! Can't you save him?" said the woman in tones of agony. The wounded man's eyes opened, and first fixed themselves, with a vacant stare, on the blue sky above. Then, turning on the woman, he seemed to try to speak. He had a strong arm. He tries to raise it, but the blood wells up with the effort, the eye glazes, the large frame shivers for a few moments and then all is still. The blood stops flowing now, for the heart has stopped beating, and an immortal soul has gone back to him who gave it. The man was a fugitive from a neighboring plantation, a simple-hearted, honest fellow who had fled with his wife and children to save her from the licentious persecution of the overseer. Grid had received and sheltered him, and built him a cabin, and protected him for months. The provisions of the revised statutes of North Carolina, enact that slaves thus secreted in the swamps, not returned within a given time, shall be considered outlawed, and that it shall be lawful for any person or persons whatsoever to kill and destroy such slaves, by such ways and means as they shall think fit, without any accusation or impeachment of crime for the same. It also provides that when any slave shall be killed in consequence of such outlawry, the value of such slave shall be ascertained by a jury, and the owner entitled to receive two-thirds of that evaluation from the sheriff of the county wherein the slave was killed. In olden times the statute provided that the proclamation of outlawry should be published on a Sabbath day at the door of any church or chapel or place where the divine service should be performed, immediately after divine service by the parish clerk or reader. In the spirit of this permission, a party of negro hunters with dogs and guns had chased this man, who on this day had unfortunately ventured out of his concealment. He succeeded in outrunning all but one dog, which sprang up, and fastening his fangs on his throat, laid him prostrate within a few paces of his retreat. Dread came up in time to kill the dog, but the wound, as appeared, had proved to be a mortal one. As soon as the wife perceived her husband was really dead, she broke into a loud wail, oh dear he's gone and twas all for me he did it oh he was so good such a good man oh do tell me is he dead is he dred lifted the yet warm hand in his a moment and then dropped it heavily dead he said in a deep undertone of suppressed emotion suddenly kneeling down beside him He lifted his hands, and broke forth with wild vehemence. O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself, lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth, render a reward to the proud. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not thou O lord art our father our redeemer thy ways are everlasting where is thy zeal and thy strength and the sounding of thy bowels toward us are they restrained then tossing his hands to heaven with a yet wilder gesture he almost screamed o lord o lord how long o That thou wouldst rend the heavens and come down. Oh, let the signs of the prisoners come before thee. Our bones are scattered at the grave's mouth, As when one cutteth and cleaveth wood. Uh, We are given as sheep to the slaughter. We are killed all the day long. Oh, Lord, uh, a vengeance of our adversaries. These words were spoken with a vehement earnestness of gesture and voice that hushed the lamentation of the mourners. Rising up from his knees, he stood a moment, looking down at the lifeless form before him. See here, he said, what harm had this man done? Was he not peaceable? Did he not live here in quietness, tilling the ground in the sweat of his brow? Why have they sent the hunters upon him? BECAUSE HE WANTED TO RAISE HIS CORN FOR HIMSELF AND NOT FOR ANOTHER, BECAUSE HE WANTED HIS WIFE FOR HIMSELF AND NOT FOR ANOTHER. WAS NOT THE WORLD WIDE ENOUGH, ISN'T THERE ROOM ENOUGH UNDER THE SKY? BECAUSE THIS MAN WISHED TO EAT THE FRUIT OF HIS OWN LABOR. The decree went forth against him, even the curse of Cain, so that whosoever findeth him shall kill him. Will not the Lord be avenged on such people as this? Tonight they will hold their solemn assembly, and blow the trumpet in their new moon, and the prophets will prophesy falsely, and the priest will speak wickedly concerning oppression the word of the lord saith unto me go unto this people and break before them the staff beauty, and the staff bands, and be a sign unto this people of the terror of the Lord. Behold, saith the Lord, therefore have I raised thee up, and led thee through the wilderness, through the desolate places of the land, not sown. As Dred Spoke his great black eye seemed to enlarge itself and roll with a glassy fullness like that of a sleep-walker in a somnambulistic dream. His wife, seeing him prepare to depart, threw herself upon him. Oh, no, don't leave us. You'll be killed some of these times, just as they killed him. Woman. The burden of the Lord is upon me, the word of the Lord is as a fire shut up in my bones. The Lord saith unto me, Go, show unto this people their iniquity, and be a sign unto this evil nation. Breaking away from his wife, he precipitated himself through an opening in the thicket, and was gone. End of chapter 22 The Worshippers